Let's pray together before we open God's Word together. Our Father, I do pray that You would shake us out of our lukewarmness or our coldness this morning. May we not treat this as common this morning. May we know that as this Word is read and as it is preached, that it is You, our sovereign God, thundering from the heavens. It is You, our Father, who is speaking to His children. May this old, old story not feel old to us. But even as we hear it read and preached this morning, may it ignite our hearts and our souls afresh and anew with delight in You and with glorying in this great Savior that has been revealed to us. It is in the name of that Savior, the strong name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 44, this is the holy and errant Word of God. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. In this text this morning, I want to look at three things. What did Christ endure before He went to the cross? What did Christ endure in the hours before He went to the cross? Second, what did Christ endure upon the cross? What did Christ endure upon the cross? And then third, 
How did Christ endure the cross? And then some applications to flow from that at the end. Last week, our passage ended, you'll remember, with Pilate at the end of the passage. He had handed Jesus over to the Romans. And he said that he handed him over to be crucified. These Roman soldiers, we now read in verse 27, they took Jesus and they took Jesus into the governor's house, into the headquarters there, and there they gathered together the battalion of Romans that were stationed there. A battalion of Romans at this time was around 600 soldiers. We don't know. Was that the number that was there at Pontius Pilate's headquarters? Was it somehow something that was less? Was it all of them that were stationed there, or was it a part of them? And as Matthew's telling it, he's speaking about all in less than a comprehensive sense. We don't really know, but at least a significant gathering of Roman soldiers were gathered together around Jesus, and they were gathered together around Him before they were to take Him out and to crucify Him. They had some time to waste before the hour for the crucifixion was to come, and so they used this time to mock and to abuse Jesus. They took some a cloak that one of them had, no doubt, from a Roman officer. It would have been part of his outfit, part of his regalia, and that cloak would have been red or purple. And they took that cloak and they put it on Jesus as if it was an emperor or a king's cloak. They then took, as you know, some branches that had thorns on them and they fashioned them into a crown that they then pressed upon his head and those thorns piercing his brow and his temples. And after that, they took some reeds and they bound them together and they put them into the hand of Jesus like a Roman emperor would have a staff. And then they mocked him. It wasn't enough that they had erected this kind of farce acting like he was a Roman emperor or king, they now mocked him as they fell before him and insulted him with, Hail, King of the Jews. As if this farce and mocking words of insult were insufficient, they then began to spit upon him, Matthew says. And they would rip the staff that they had fashioned out of his hand and they began beating him on the head with, that mock staff. After having their fun, they stripped him, they put him back in his regular clothes, and then they led him out to be crucified. John tells us in his gospel that as they led him out to be crucified, they put the cross beam, that, that beam that would have gone across on the cross, they put that on his shoulders and they required him to carried that out as he left the headquarters of Pilate and as he left that city center and as they drove him out like a beast of burden outside the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha, that place of the skull, what we often call Mount Calvary, outside the city. And as you think about Christ bearing that burden, I want you to think about what we know of Him over these last couple of weeks as we've looked at these hours leading up to the crucifixion. Jesus, the entire night before, has not been able to get even a single wink of sleep. He is sleep-deprived. He also was not fed, and so His body is hungry. No doubt there is the pit of hunger in his stomach, and so here you have this man that is sleep-deprived, and he has also been deprived of food over at least the previous 24 hours. And it is with that wearied, sleep-deprived, food-deprived body that he was forced to stand on trial before Annas and before Caiaphas and before Pontius Pilate. And it is with that wearied body that then he was handed over by 
Pontius Pilate to the Romans, where Pontius Pilate ordered them to scourge Jesus, as we saw last week, where they took a whip that would have had leather tassels at the end and had bone fragments and had metal fragments in the end of it, and where they whipped his back, and where they would have flogged his back in such a manner that they would have shred his back. Often in cases like this, they would have done it down to the bone or even where you can see the entrails of the person. And if that wasn't enough, they are now beating him with that reed staff. They are spitting upon him and they are punching him. But is this Jesus? This wearied Jesus that they're now laying the cross beam on. And that they are driving out of the city like he is a beast of burden. And so it doesn't come as a surprise that as he is going through the streets and on his way outside of the city, that as the other Gospels tell us, he falters under the weight of this beam. His, his body can't take it any longer. So the Romans see a man that is passing by, Simon the Cyrene, and they draft him into service and they put that cross beam on him and now he is to carry that cross outside the city for the Lord of glory who will die upon that cross. Matthew tells us in verse 32, Jesus is taken to the place of the skull, Golgotha, and there, as Matthew tells us, just simply, they crucified him. That's what he experienced in the hours leading up to the crucifixion. So second, what did Christ endure upon the cross? What did he endure upon the cross? It's fascinating to me that what we see Matthew do, all the gospel writers do. Verse 35, it's just very simple. He just simply says, and when they had crucified Him. It's one participle in the Greek. One word. They had crucified Him. He uses one word, one participle to mention the most grueling and horrific of punishments man can imagine. Just one word. In a crucifixion, the individual, as you know, was either nailed to a cross or he was bound to a cross. As you know, Jesus in the Gospels was nailed to the cross. And then that cross would be raised, those two pieces would be raised, and they would be lifted up into the air. And what happens when you're lifted up into the air is that your body would pull down on you, and it would shrink this chest cavity so that it was hard to breathe, and your body would begin to go into convulsions so that it became even harder to breathe. And so what a person that was crucified would do is they would push using their feet, they would push their body up on, on the vertical part of the cross beam, push their body up just so they could stretch out a little bit and, and try and breathe in. We know that the Roman soldiers, when they wanted to hasten a man's death, as we see in the Gospels, they would go by and they would just break the man's legs because then you can't push yourself up. And eventually what would happen is, is you would die either of a lack of being able to breathe or you would die from your heart just finally giving out. What's interesting is that when we consider the cross, you and I are prone to focus upon that, upon the physical pain of it. That's where, that's where we want to run. That's what we want to think upon. There's some value to this, but not as much as we might imagine. You say, well, how, meh, Jason, how, how can you say that? And I can say that because of what we see. 
What do the gospel writers focus on? They don't focus on the physical bane. They don't mention the details of the excruciating way he died. Matthew simply gives us a participle. They had crucified him. That's it. They crucified him. I remember years ago when Mel Gibson's movie The Passion came out and it was that Hollywood movie that was to show in a cinematic way the gory details of Christ dying upon the cross. And I remember Christians, evangelical Christians, incredibly excited about this. Churches showing it in their churches. I never saw it. And I never will. And that's for two reasons. Uh, one, I know there will be some disagreement in this room, but I believe it's a violation of the second commandment. We don't make images of Christ. But second, I have another reason. It's because the movie sensationalizes what the gospel writers chose not to. Hollywood did what Matthew and Mark and Luke refused to do, what Isaiah and Paul and Peter refused to do. Just one word. Notice what they focus on. I want you to think upon what the gospel writers focus on. You can pick it up here in Matthew. What Matthew focuses upon, what he highlights. It isn't the physical pain, though obviously that is severe and it's not to be out of our minds. We're to know that. We're to understand that. But you can see what he focuses upon by the repetition that he uses. There's a word that he repeats three times just in this little passage. It's a word that you would have seen previously in Matthew 20 on the lips of Jesus when Jesus is talking about the fact that he's going to be crucified. He uses this word. I wonder if you caught it when I was reading through. It's the word mock. He was mocked. All three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, will focus upon the mocking Jesus experienced while He was on the cross. And I want you to think about why that is. Why is it that it would be this, that it would be this mocking that they spend so much time on, that Matthew is trying to bring our attention to as he says that word three times, and then he will echo it a couple more times in the passage. Why is that? When we think about this passage, it is what one writer called a chorus of derision. We're meant to see the world before Christ mocking Him. We're see all of these different representative groups that are there next to Him, hanging by Him, walking by Him, sitting at the foot of the cross, all of them mocking Him. Representative groups, we have the soldiers, we have the passerbys, we have the chief priests, we have the elders, we have the robbers, as we see in the last verse of this text, and in the other Gospels get more detail about what they were saying. They're all mocking Jesus as He hangs upon the tree. The soldiers mock him on his way to the cross, and then as he hangs there by offering him this water that they have tainted with gall to make it bitter, they're mocking the thirst that his body is suffering under, and they, they give him this drink as if it's something good for him, and then he tastes it and is bitter, and he has nothing to do with them. Mock him. They mock him, this Prince of glory, the Lord of all glory. They strip him naked. Maybe he had a loincloth on, but most likely he's just stripped naked and bare. And the Lord of glory laid out naked on a cross before the world. They fixed that, that title above his head in a mocking way, King of the Jews. Soldiers mock him. And there are the common people who are passing by. Matthew tells us in verse 39 that they, quote, derided Him. They're wagging their heads at Him. And they would say, as they're looking up at Him, they would say to Him, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
You say that to the Savior of the world. And then we have the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and they also come to mock, but, but they're beyond speaking directly to a criminal. And so they're just going to talk to one another, and they're going to talk loud enough so that that one hanging on the tree can hear them. And so they say with a mocking voice, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Why all this mocking? Why is it that the gospel writers want you to see this mocking? I think it could be for a number of reasons. I think it could be that we are to see that all of these disparate voices, all of these different types of people are mocking Him so that you and I can see that the entire world is mocking Him. So that you and I would not think that we are somehow without excuse and, oh, if I had been there, I would not have mocked Him. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is to show that, you know what, it's not just the physical injury, it's not just what he is going to sustain, but it's also that verbal assault upon him. I think that's part of it. But I think more than anything, so you and I might see the great temptation he was under. The mocking brings home his temptation upon the cross. So we'll see next week the great severity of the cross is the wrath of God that is heaped upon the Lord Jesus. That, that is the great weight of the cross that He who has forever known the Father, who has ever been in communion and union with the Father, is now receiving the wrath of His Father. That is the great weight of the cross. But only second to that is the temptation that He is suffering upon the cross. They're tempting Him. It's the same temptation that Satan offered Jesus in the wilderness. Show us if indeed you are the Son of God. You say you're the Son of God. Then come down. If you come down, we'll believe in you. What a temptation. You say that God is for you. Then come down. Show us. What a temptation. And that pool that was outside of him, as he's hearing all of these voices cry out to him with these tempting words, it must have been incredibly significant. The pool must have been great. Jesus, you've saved others. Save yourself. Are you a Savior or not? He had saved the lame man. He had made him walk. He had saved the blind man, given him sight to see. He had Saved that demoniac who was filled with a legion. He had cast them out. He had saved Lazarus from the grave by raising him from the grave. Show us. Save yourself. If he's the son of God, he could. And all those mocking voices in his ears when he was at his absolute weakest. I could have spoken. He could have shut their mouths. He could have revealed His glory. Though He could, He wouldn't. And why? Because as John Calvin said, the proof which the wicked demand of Christ is such that by showing Himself to be the Son of God, He must cease to be the Son of God. Show us you're the Son of God. But you see, the Son of God had covenanted with the Father in eternity past that He would become flesh, and that He would become flesh so that He might save His people from their sins. He had covenanted with the Father in eternity past this. And if He now denied this, then He denied His Father. And if He denies His Father, then He is not the Son of the Father. 
He can't deny himself. And so he hangs upon that cross. Think in this moment that this world that he came to die for, that it's standing there in every way and by his side, on his right and on his left, and at his feet, and as it, those that are passing by, this world that he came to save is just mocking him. Where there should have been a resounding chorus of thank yous. It's just jeers and insults. So our third point, how did Jesus endure the cross? How did he endure the cross? I think there are three things that jump out from this text. The first is found by looking at the mocking words themselves, what they are saying to him. Matthew wants us to look at these words and understand what they're doing in the attack with these words. He wants us to see that these aren't idle words. But rather, what they are doing is they are attacking Jesus at the very place where he is finding his strength. They're attacking his faith in the Father. The man Jesus is the man of faith. And he has faith in his Father. And that's what they're attacking. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. He said, I am the Son of God. That, that, that taunt. It echoes Psalm 22, verse 8, a psalm that Jesus will later quote, as we'll see next week as He hangs upon the cross. But it also, it brings to mind Psalm 42, verse 3, there where the mockers cry out, where is your God? They're attacking Him where He's finding His strength. He's trusting His Father. And so that's where they attack Him. When He's at His absolute weakest, do you really believe, Jesus, that your Father desires you? Do you really think that He delights in you? This is always the way with our adversary. If I had a dime for every person that came to me for pastoral counsel, that when they are at their weakest, the dominant thing that they're now wrestling with in their mind and their heart is, does God really care for me? Does He really desire me? Does He really love me? I, I'd be a rich man. It's how our adversary almost always attacks when you're at your weakest. Does God really care for you? Does He really desire you as they say to Him? Psalm 56 has always struck me. David is being oppressed. He says a man is trampling on him. He says that they are injuring him and stirring up strife against him. He, he talks about this and says that he is crying on his bed at night. He is so devastated. He is so disappointed. He's so discouraged just by life that he's, he's crying on his bed every night. He's tossing, he says, in his, in his sleep at night. And and then there's this wonderful refrain that you see there where he reassures himself in the middle of the night and comforts himself with this. He says, this I know. This I know that God is for me. That changes everything. This I know God is for me. How to understand that. So often, we're looking at our circumstances, our life's circumstances, as if that dictates to us how God feels about us and what God thinks of us. And what the psalmist is doing and what Christ is doing upon the cross is he's reassuring himself he knows that God is for him. Knows it. He knows this is the Father's will. And he knows whatever the Father's will is, it's the best of wills. And so he's going to stay upon that cross. 
As John Newton once said, the cross of Christ is the tree of life and it's the tree of knowledge combined. It was the only way to save mankind. It was the only way for the Father to remain just and to remain loving and to grant salvation to sinners. It was the only way for His glory to shine forth and all of its radiance was for the Son to stay upon that cross. And so He does. He trusts His Father. Second, Jesus also endured the cross not only by trusting His Father, but by leaning into His Father, by leaning upon His Word. By leaning into His Father, by leaning upon His Word. It's the Word of God that sustains Him. So, well, how do you know that? Well, I want you to think. Think back with me to Matthew 4. When he's in the wilderness, and he's in the wilderness and being led out, and Satan is there tempting him with these same temptations, and he's tempting him. How does Jesus respond each time? He responds each time with the Word of God. As we go on in this passage, as we'll see next week, when he is at his deepest, darkest moment upon the cross, what is it that he speaks? What is it that's on his lips? It's the Psalms. It's the Word of God. You have all of these voices, just this cacophony of voices. You have the thieves on both sides. You have Romans at His feet. You have passerbys. You have these religious elites. And they're all wagging their tongues at Him. But the voice He hears beyond every other voice is the voice of His Father. That's what He hears. And how? How is that even possible? because he was a man that knew the Word of God. It's on his lips, as he quotes Psalm 22, as we'll see next week. It's on his lips because it's in his mind and it's in his heart. He's sown in it his heart. He's, he's an example for us as well. I think often we think, well, we'll go through these darkest moments and somehow we will rise to the challenge. And you see, with our Lord and Savior, there is so much preparatory work. He's a man that was reading the Scriptures, meditating upon the Scriptures, sowing them in his heart, so that in that moment, in that darkest of moments, it's there. It's there. So that when those voices are loudest, when you're at your absolute lowest, when it feels like all the possible world there is is against you, it is that voice that is loudest. God's for me. He's for me. Third, our Lord and our Savior endures the cross Because his love for sinners was greater than the pain sinners could inflict upon him. His love for sinners was greater than the pain sinners could inflict upon him. I was thinking about this this week in that famous story, The Count of Monte Cristo. You have that great character, I think one of the great characters in the history of novels, you know, Edmond Dantes. Edmond Dantes has been betrayed and he's been thrown into prison and there it seems like he will rot away the rest of the days of his life and there he is in that chateau d'if and it's there in the chateau d'if that he will stay alive and eventually emerge and how does he stay alive all of those weeks and months and years well he stays alive by just but just nurturing revenge. That's what keeps him alive. He's just nurturing revenge. He's going to get even with these people. In these minutes, in these hours upon the cross, Jesus doesn't endure that trial by nurturing revenge. He's doing it by nurturing love. He's there for sinners. 
He said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. It's love that keeps him nailed there. It's love that keeps him resolved there. Let them add all the pain and all the injury and all the insults that they can. It can't touch his love. And so he remains. What a Savior. That's a Savior. That's a Savior. Just a few quick applications. First, let us never doubt that God is for us. When we're in deep waters, when it feels like things could not possibly get lower, the trial is hard, our mind's eye is to run to the cross. Dear Christian, if you are depressed, and discouraged, and you feel defeated, and your mind is not running to the foot of the cross, then you're doing it wrong. That's where you're to run. When I was 12, first for 12, uh, I did it for three years, so 12, 13, 14, uh, I lived some of the worst summers of my entire life because I had one of the worst jobs on the face of the earth. Uh, when I was 12, the only thing you could do is for a job in central Illinois was detassel corn. And so I was a detasseler of corn. And that meant that you would get out there literally a couple of minutes after sunrise and you would walk up and down those corn rows when they are soaked with all kinds of dew and you would be soaked and you would be freezing in the morning hours as you're just going down the rows like this. And then by the time you hit the afternoon, it is 100 degrees, there's no wind through those rows, and you are dying, and you're just going through the rows like this. And I would often get in those moments, especially late in the afternoon, where I was getting uh, a little discouraged, like, oh man, I still got three more hours to go, and we've been at this for eight hours, and... Uh, so I had two things that were of great comfort to me. One was my Sony Walkman. Children can ask your parents about this. Me and the Beatles jammed out in cornrows on a Sony Walkman. The second was this, is when I got tired of Yellow Submarine, uh, I, would, I would start counting in my head. $4.15 an hour times, and I would start figuring out what my paycheck was going to be by the end of the week. That's where my mind would run, uh, the paycheck. For the Christian, our, our minds just run to the cross. If you don't run there, you're doing it wrong. Say, ah, but these circumstances that I meant, you run to the cross. That's where you see His great love for you. That he's for you. You never doubt it. Second, the cross makes demands upon us, so let us live in light of the cross. It's interesting, to me at least, that Jesus does two things throughout the Gospels in relation to the cross. The one is that he's preparing his disciples for the fact that he's going to die upon the cross. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He's telling them over and over, though they have no comprehension, though they don't seem to understand it in any measure, he keeps telling them, I'm going to die. And he even tells them that he's going to die upon a cross. But the second thing that he does is he's constantly informing them throughout the Gospels that not only is he going to die on the cross, that there is not only implications for him about that cross, but that rather they are now going to need to live in light of that cross and they are going to have a cross. And he says that over and over. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus will go so far as to say, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Disciples of Christ are cross-bearers. They're cross-bearers. As we said last week, in one sense, we are to see ourselves in the crowd yelling for Jesus' death. In another sense, we are to see ourselves as Barabbas who was set free from the cross. And yet also, in yet another sense, from this text, we're to see ourselves as Simon of Cyrene who is to pick up the cross. That this is what it looks like. This is what it is. In this day and age where everybody is about self, and everyone is about my tribe and my people and my rights, the disciple of Christ looks drastically different. And everything is about that. Oh, we have a light to shine before this world. As Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. As John Stott said, our cross then is not an irritable husband or a cantankerous wife. It is instead the symbol of death to the self. As John Owen, who I think said it as wonderfully as any, for what are the things of which we are to deny ourselves? Is it not our goods, our rights and freedoms, our relations and our lives? We are to give ourselves ourselves. Jesus, you don't know what you're asking. Oh, he more than knows. Jesus, you have no right to ask. Oh, he has every right. You see, he lives for you and dies for you so that you might now have life and that you might die to self and live for him. It all gets turned around. This is what it looks like to be a disciple. He demands our all. He demands our all. Not part. He demands your all. Denying yourself and picking up your cross is not fasting from chocolate during Lent. That's not a cross. Denying yourself and picking up your cross is not abstaining from some luxury items in your life. That's not a cross. Living even with a cantankerous wife or a complaining or unbelieving husband, that's, that's not the cross that he's speaking of. No, it's denying self. It's where I realize that I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. This Savior gave His life for me. He died for me that I might have life. So now I've died to self and now all that I am, all that I am, is His. Everything. Every corner of my life, He has a claim on. Isn't the Heidelberg Catechism so wonderful along these lines? You give all to Him because He has already given all for you and He will give you all. What is my only comfort in life and death that asks that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? He has fully paid for all my sins with this precious blood and has set me free. From all the power of the devil, he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's it. His life for mine, now my life for His. 
I say that knowing that some of you have incredible crosses that you are bearing. Some of you in this room have much harder crosses than others of us. And it can be severe. You know, we're all Christians are in the king's army. We, we all serve him. We, we all can be called at any point to serve in whatever measure he would have us serve for the sake of the kingdom and deny ourselves. You know, on a battlefield, there are soldiers that will be on the front lines, and then there are some soldiers that are back at camp on guard duty. But at any point, you can be called from guard duty out to the front lines. It's also true that those that are on the front lines, some are in the most intense part of the battle. They are in the very center, in the core, and they're facing the most fierce of attacks, the most severe. They have to bear the heaviest load. Ah, oh, that cross feels so heavy there. And the people on the flanks, it's, they're in the front lines, but it's just a little lighter. But you see, he's the king. And he gives us each our position and our point. And he calls us to where he would have us serve. You know, there is um, some that feel guilt because they are on guard duty. There is no reason to feel guilt for that. I, there's even reason to count it as a blessing. There's a blessing in that. We say, ah, I'm, I look around and I don't have the cross they have. And it's okay to rejoice in that. There's a blessing in that. I think, though, what we often do is we look at those that are carrying the heaviest crosses, and often we think, well, this is the discipline of the Lord. Or this is the Lord somehow being severe with them because they have lacked faithfulness. But that is more often than not, not the case. It's almost always the reverse. Where there is the severest service, there is where we find the greatest honor. It was true of our Savior. It's more often than not true of His disciples. Those in the midst of the battle, though they are assaulted in every way, though they are feeling exhausted and experiencing the pain of, of being pressed down, they also know the grace of Christ in ways that others of us have no concept of. They know what it means to really seek the will of God and how trustworthy that will is. They know how much they can rely upon the Word of God. They come to understand that love that Christ has for His soldiers, for His sheep in ways that others of us, we hear about and we don't comprehend. And I guarantee this, when the war is over, none who have suffered will regret what they've suffered for the king. None. And those that have suffered the greatest will even have greater delight in the everlasting reign of their king. And that leads to our final application. Know, dear Christian, that you never, oh, and I want you to understand this. Please understand this. You never, you never look more like your Savior than when you are suffering silently for the glory of God and out of love for your fellow brothers and sisters. You never look more like your Savior than when you're doing that. This is why Paul, like in Colossians, can say, he can say, uh, he says, I rejoice in my suffering." I rejoice in my sufferings, he says, for your sake. He says, for I'm filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body. What's he saying? He's saying, look, I can rejoice in the suffering. I can rejoice in this cross that I'm bearing. Though it is heavy, I can rejoice in it because you know what? It gives glory to my Father. 
And I do it out of love for my brothers and sisters because I know that the suffering that I'm experiencing somehow in the providence of God, in the economy of God, it lessens how much suffering they have to experience. And he says, so I rejoice. Peter will say of our Savior, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What a Savior. Will you continue to trust yourself to him? Will I? Ah, oh, he is so worthy of our trust. There's no Savior like this. Let's pray. Father, give you praise for sending your Son. And oh, Lord Jesus, we give you praise. <laughs> Seems so silly even to say that. It, uh, how do we capture it? That you, the King of glory, would hang in nakedness upon a tree. That you, the giver of life, would experience death. That you who created and shaped and formed each of those deriders and mockers who even put their very tongues in their mouths, that you would willingly receive their insults in silence. And all that because you loved us. How we adore you. How it shames us that we don't love you more. For truly there is no Savior like you. May we live in light of the cross. May you help us to do so. Where that is not true in our living, shape us and mold us. Where it is absent and foreign from our lives. Bring it to bear. We might glory in you, our King of glory. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.